Hello and welcome to Off the Record. We're back this week with a less cranky Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Thank God for that. Um, if you don't follow us on Twitter at Off the Record FM, you would have missed that my mom texted me uh, following listening to our last week's episode to make sure that she told she told me so I could tell Jesse that he was a dick on last week's episode. Mm-hmm. Can't believe it. Yeah, I felt pretty bad about that one, but, you know, I I had to help out my boy and, you know, my evil mind, you know, figures out ways for you to get more Christmas gifts. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) We're all set now, so it's great. It's good good to hear. Glad I can help. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, Anyway, you can keep up to date with us at offtherecord.fm. You could leave us an iTunes review if you love us. And also, we are live on Adobe Radio every Thursday at 7 p.m. It seems like they don't hate us there yet. So thank you for that, listeners. Uh, We have some very important follow-up this week. Um, We had, you know, as you could see with our title last week, we, we spent most of four hours talking about health goth. And um, <laughs> Jesse sort of explaining to me where my future life is probably not headed. We we got a question from listener at Eastbound Two F K D on Twitter by uh, tweeting Ask OTR at us, and the question was simply, "Yo, is Davy Havoc the founder of the Health Goth lifestyle?" I, I mean, ever since AFI took on that policy where they were going to play play venues where there was smoking, I think that this person's onto something. That he he started Health Goth. I uh, my dear friend Keaton um, posted a photo on Instagram this week. Just so happened, just like randomly, and it was of a uh, like a fashion something like selling health goth health goth clothes. Hmm. I guess that's like a thing. I didn't realize that you could buy health goth clothes. I thought it. W- I thought you had to like acquire different pieces of clothing to assemble your own health goth. But I didn't realize the brand had started selling its own movement at this point. That's how you know health goth has hit mainstream. I guess right. I, I mean, there, there's a whole health goth uh, Etsy store where s- somebody curates just how you can be health goth. So it's like the properties act of health goth. Oh, but selling, I, 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 did, I did not. I did not think of it that you way. You have to think about everything that way. It all comes back to pop punk. Oh man, I know, I know. Every health gother listened to Blink One Eighty Two once upon a time, or Alkaline Trio. So they now yeah, listen to Blink One Eighty Two. I, I was gonna say, I think that was more of an Alkaline Trio, Murder City Devils type of thing. Murder City Devils. Every time I see that band name, I think it's uh, uh, murder. Nope, nope. Never mind. I forget what I was gonna say. Uh, death, murder by city, murder by murder oh, yeah. by death, murder by death is who I think it is. Uh, and then I realize they're two different bands. They are very are they different. Very are they different? that different? Uh, uh, well, like so. This is this is the criteria for how you can be a Murder City Devils fan. Mm. You have to have one tattoo that was drawn very poorly and has faded a good amount, and that's the only way you can enjoy their music. Well, my ta- when do you think my tattoos will start to fade? Or will they ever? Well, my tattoos are all about 18 years old right now. Mm, older and, than me. And one's getting a little faded. One's definitely like, uh, I, I had a girl come up to me at a bar and told me that she would have thought I was in my mid-20s if she hadn't seen how faded one of my tattoos was. Is that heartbreaking or a victory? Uh, I mean, it means I'm taking good care of my skin with all the moisturizer, you know? Right. 
Right. <laughs> sure. I know that you moisturize every day. You do the face masks. You. It's in the health goth kit. Dude, dude, I live with an esthetician who dresses like a health goth. Of course I do this stuff. I don't know what that word means. But the esthetician is somebody who, takes, who does your skin. You wow. Know? That seems like yeah, a very get, get, niche job. Well, in a good it's way. One of, one of her many, yeah. Mm. I'm now going to go to an esthetician. Um, <laughs> but you might want to learn how to say it first. They don't care. They get paid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to get into the show, this is a this is a question episode. We we have been saving some over the past few weeks. While we typically answer some questions every week, we've been saving some good ones that we thought would kind of bring a whole show together on not the same subject, but and again for future episodes, if you have questions, you can tweet hashtag Ask OTR. And uh, we will read them. And if your name sounds like Thomas's name, we will make fun of you. We wanted to talk a little bit about <clears throat> uh, from a question from our dear friend Thomas Nassif. This isn't Thomas Nassif. This person's name on Twitter is Wish I Was Thomas. So is that like, you know, that what was that rapper of the song about like how he wished he was taller? I was just going to say it, but I didn't. Th- I thought you'd make fun of me too much. So no. I didn't say it. Well, wait, wait, wait. Last week you said like a rant that was like sounded like I was out of my mouth. Then we were going to make the same joke this week. This show's getting. It's getting bad if we're going to start agreeing on things all the time. This is bad. Yeah, it's yeah, not good. It's over for us. Uh, I don't think you'd wish to be 6'9 and goofy. <laughs> and, I mean, more than anything, I don't think you'd wish to be from Florida. No, yeah, that's definitely right. true. That's that's his biggest flaw. Not his size, but his origin. He's. A, yeah, I didn't think about this. Thomas is a Florida man. but So this person did have a serious question yes, for us. yes. And they wanted to know how long bands should wait between releases. Like, off the bat, I guess the response is that it kind of depends for everyone, right? But I I think it depends on what kind of music scene you look at. So, like, well, Jesse, do you have a preference about it? Do you have, like, a quality versus quantity preference? Or do you, or, or are you most, I think that ultimately is the decision, right? Yeah, I think that that really is the thing is, one, how much output is the songwriter able to put out with still maintaining it being a good song? I mean, I, we've discussed on this podcast before, I think it was like in two years, we put out 55 songs with Man Overboard. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a big thing that, yes, there's too much time to wait. And, you know, I, we should also say that right after this, we have a question from listener Liam Robinson that's very related to this, which is, do you think the market can be oversaturated or undersaturated with music from a band? Can putting out too much music hurt a band's success as with putting out too little? And I think the only way it can hurt a band is if you just put out so much crap that people can't tell the difference between your crap and your good stuff. But if your audience seems to be enjoying it and really can't get enough of it, it's not a bad thing. But I think in general, you know, more than one EP in six months kind of hurts just the life cycle of it spreading. I would say that you're probably not promoting that EP enough if you're putting them out more than every six months. But I would would also say this too that you know i think yeah about a year uh in between full legs is best case scenario like if i was managing a band and i was telling them how to devote their time i would pretty much you know it was a very traditional thing around the mid 70s to mid 80s that bands literally outputted a record every year not in every genre but that was an increasingly common thing when let's say like what new wave and punk was right and um 
I think that that's a good goal to have, even if you don't hit it, is that you should be trying to make a, a solid record every 12 to 18 months because then you have the time to promote it. As I've often said, I talk about a lot of the book, is that you know if you're doing the right amount of promotion for your record, your best sales month will actually be month nine when you're a new band, not your first week of sales. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people miss out on is they try to make week one their best week and really like... You know, I like I make the example of like tell all your friends like their best sales week was nine months out. It was like having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, I, I think well, this is the thing. just like almost everything anyone will ever talk about. It depends on the situation and the band. But um, to use a current real life example of Kevin Devine, who I think is doing something very interesting right now that I'm involved in. So there's your conflict of interest warning. But Kevin released a double rec, two records. It wasn't a double record. He released two records in 2013, in October of 2013. Uh, they're each a full length, kickstarted, etc. Uh, he toured heavily on them. And originally, um, he felt like he needed to release an album in 2015, just because that would be a year and a half to two years after the last two albums came out. And it was a pressure, but he also had tours happening and he didn't necessarily have like a record's worth of songs you know and he didn't want to force something out because the last two records did really well and he wanted to keep that going so we started talking about doing this split series called divinal splits and um how can we be creative in what you're releasing to make sure that uh fans haven't forgotten you to make sure that there's not too long to wait in between records to make sure that you can still write a great record that you want and need to write and have enough time to do it and so we kind of mapped out this split series which is six series uh which is six splits over a year uh and some of those are going to feature brand new music some of those are going to be covers different interpretations whatever and they're all with interesting partners that will help Kevin's next record hopefully do even better, right? Because Kevin traditionally is very much put in the brand new Manchester Orchestra world. But doing splits with Not A Surf and Perfect Pussy and Tiger's Jaw, that's, those are way different, like, quote-unquote, looks than he's ever gotten before in terms of bands he's teamed up with, right? So... He's going to be getting all this all this attention every other month with a new split from potentially different fan bases. And so by the time he has a new record ready to go, hopefully there's a few hundred new fans from each of those uh, communities we're doing splits with ready to get into the record. And also his normal core fan base has also been exposed to this cool limited series and has kept up to date and interested with him while he's making a record instead of just hiding away. And I, I think that's like that, like, I mean, that's a rare scenario, right? But I, I think that's really cool and a good way to make sure you take the time you need to also just get make the right record for your future, you know? Yeah, I think that that's a great point. My, my one thing, so, so here here's what I think would be interesting too. The first question I'll ask you is, do you know of a band who's ever put out too much music in a period of time? I don't know. So I, I when we got this question, I thought about it and admittedly I'm not, the most awake I've been, but I can't think of it. And if I do think of it, I want to revisit this in the future episode. If we can think of somebody who did, because I think that'd be interesting. Second. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Cause like, it, it's not ultimately the issue isn't typically, did you put out too much music? Oh, you know what? I, I do kind of have someone, <laughs> but I, I think ultimately it's not putting out too much so, music. So, so, so what are you? Wait, 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 who is it? I would say ultimately, uh, 
transit kind of bit the bullet of putting out too much music. When in which period? So I, I transit, as you well know. In fact, I listened to something left behind yesterday while working in the warehouse, and I was like, man, this is really one of my favorite releases ever. Still. Um, but Transit had this really interesting cycle of 2010, they released Keep This to Yourself. Help me if I'm wrong on timelines. But 2010, they released Keep This to Yourself. Yeah, it was, so, so, so it was uh, end of summer. Yeah. Beginning, beginning, beginning of the year, I think it was January Yeah, they released Something Left Behind in 2012, my senior year. Then a few months later in April of 2012 for Record Store Day, I think, they released a seven inch called Promise Nothing. That was their Rise debut, which I mm. also think is incredible. Then a few months after that, they released Listen and Forgive, which is uh, considered critically their best album. And those were four releases in under a year, actually. Oh no, in just over a year. Um, and they were all really great. And I love them all. But then it's kind of interesting. Since that release, it feels like it kind of fell apart for Transit. Yeah, but. I would argue that's not because they put out too much music and with a well-run try. That was that was choosing a bad direction. Right, but can we but as part of choosing a bad direction running out of material are are we like we know more about transit because we've had experience with them, right? But if we can pick a, if we can pick a random band, whoever the band is. I I, I was part of creating half that output. Right. If not m- more than half that output. So one I would say yes, I know it in this. And two I would also say in my 17 years of making records full-time that that's not the case ever i don't think it's usually that the bands well runs dry that they make a bad creative decision they make a bad creative decision because they get to it usually the creative decisions bands are making are years in the making anyway they're finally getting the chance to make that bad creative decision because it's the right time and they still think it's a good idea and i would say that that was the case with them which was choosing a horrible producer for that record who had bad ideas on how to make them sound good. So, yeah, I don't know that I can necessarily like, I I, actually, if if think about releasing too much music too soon, I would say that they released four releases in 14 months and I love them all dearly still. And so that's kind of like the opposite of that, you know? Yeah. Um, So, so, but here's part two of the question, double albums. Are they ever a good idea? Ah, okay. So that's kind of interesting. So, like like we were just saying, Kevin DeVine released two separate records on the same day, and mm. I think they're both great. One is like a, I don't want to say punk rock, but more of a punk rock spirited record, and another is more of like a kind of solo spirited record. So they're different. They're not supposed to be the same record, and I think they both succeed in what they're trying to do, which is great. Um, the Who else can you think of releasing a double record? There's like Coheed has done that. Red Hot Chili Peppers. I just I I don't I can't think of so. Oh, these many. are these are two, you just named two of my least favorite bands. So I mean I think of that Smashing Pumpkins one, and I was a huge fan of the band, and that was just too much music. Same thing with Guns N' Roses with Use Your Illusion. I, I just think in general, like yeah, there is something that there's only a certain amount of music to digest. I think back to our favorite. Uh, oh well, you get say anything. No, oh, well that was terrible too. Because eventually that that is to me like I think you I think you go into it. So we've talked about concept records. I feel to me like if you a successful concept record doesn't try to do too much, mm. but a double record. If you're going to me, the difference is like if you're going into doing a double record and you're like I'm gonna make a double record then you need to fill all the songs versus mm. if it's a concept record, 
a concept whatever could be four songs. It could be 16 and anywhere in between. Like the concept is going to go how long it needs to go if it's done right. But a double record, you definitely need two records worth of material, right? And I, I feel like you have to kind of force yourself to make sure that you have two records worth of material, which can be like just kind of, I feel I feel like that's a good, the well might run dry scenario because you have to force yourself potentially. Well, I, I think of, and I know you're a fan of this band, well, I'm not, is when early November put out that triple record right. and people kind of left them silly at like- It's a disaster. Yeah, like that, the, the jet, the jet, I don't think of- Some people, some people in the band might even admit to it being a disaster. Yeah, I, I think uh, that was- uh, you know, sometimes bands get into this thing like where they're like, hey, I'm going to do this big grandiose thing so we get some attention. And that kind of seemed like an attention grab that really failed for getting that good music is the main thing that gets attention. And I think that's the thing with double records is usually most people aren't good enough to pull them off that it's all good music and not just tons of throwaway that makes the record less enjoyable because you have to skip songs every 10 seconds. So the next question is from a Twitter user at C-M-U-N-N-3-Y. When a small band sends in songs they recorded to Jesse, how big of a difference does mastering make? Well, one small or big doesn't matter, but I can say this as a general rule for mastering, which is the worse it sounds, the bigger a difference mastering can make because... Here's a great example is that I can get things so right when I produce them that when I send them to Alan Douches to master because I get him to master my stuff as an objective perspective, he doesn't have to do very much because I already got it so right. And sometimes when he even does too much, I'm like, no, 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 this is way too much. When you get things really, really right, you don't need mastering to do too much. You know, sometimes it's like a hair less bass. Maybe you lost perspective about this, but when a band with a bad budget does mastering, I think mastering really matters even more when you're low budget or you didn't take enough time to make the record. So are you saying that mastering, you can, it's worse when it's bad than when it's better when it's good? <laughs> I'm saying you can make a greater difference in proving the product and mastering when it's bad. Whereas if it's already really good, like think of it this way. We were just talking about your Kevin Devinal stuff. There's times when those tracks come in and I'm like, yeah, I put like one frequency up on this because it sounded pretty perfect and they did a great job. Whereas then there's other times we get stuff and I'm like, hey, can you get me the whole master mix thing down to as minimal a thing as you can because we got to save this thing. Yeah, it's been an interesting process for me to watch with you doing all these songs for different kinds of bands from like pop punk bands to like indie bands uh and and just to see how it can make a difference or how it doesn't sometimes like sometimes you'll yeah sometimes we'll send it to you we'll get it back i'm like i don't know if he did anything he's probably just trying to steal money from you because he's a thief and a dick <laughs> and other times yeah. i'm like wow this is really good cool it's interesting yeah and i think that's the thing is is mastering it's it's not really it's really about a lot of the time that it's just like when something doesn't seem right it can save the day at the end and when it's not and when it's really right there really doesn't need to be much done at all the sweet spot so the next question is i follow a spotify playlist called uh pop punk powerhouses which is created by spotify it's primarily the older pop 
popular pop punk songs like Ocean Avenue, Make Damn Sure, which I saw played last night. I love Taking Back Sunday. Uh, I remember last fall, a song from Yellow Card's new album was added randomly, and now it's no longer on the playlist. Today, they added the new Offspring song to the playlist. I guess I'd guess bands labels are paying for uh, bang to get those songs added to the sort of playlist. Do you guys have any thoughts? Um, I will say from some experience, it's actually not about payment at all. Um, yeah, it's about uh, just having a contact at Spotify and trying to work with them to promote new music. Uh, for instance, Bad Timing is putting out a EP by a young band called Head North this week. We're trying to get some extra Spotify love for them. And that's purely through relationships. It's purely through sizes of bands. Maybe that Spotify person loves pop punk and will come across it on his own and add it in or something like that. But it's not so much about money because label labels are trying to get Spotify to pay them more money, not the other way around, frankly, at this matter of time. And the same thing, same thing happens with iTunes. Like, um, Every once in a while, Rise will get like a big banner on iTunes that's like, new Sleeping With Sirens album out now. And uh, people get surprised because it's like, whoa, Rise Records is next to like a new album from Maroon 5. That's weird. And and it's it's because of if Sleeping With Sirens is going to sell 70,000 copies first week, iTunes has it in all of its interest for it to keep selling because they make 30% of that money. Uh, and same thing with Spotify. At the end of the day, Spotify only want more people to listen. Uh, let's say you've never heard an Offspring song before, like me. Not really. If I listen to that uh, playlist and I hear Offspring for the first time and I'm like, whoa, this band is awful. Let me listen to 20 more songs by them. That's only more money or that's only more of engagement on Spotify's part. Maybe that's two more ads you hear. Maybe that's a reason why you sign up for the subscription service, whatever. Like, it's all just about keeping you on Spotify and listening more. Yeah, I think the, another interesting aspect of this is, yeah, well, so we should outright say, no, this is not something that's paid for. But what is interesting is bands often ask me, I'm going to put my music up through DistroKid or TuneCore or whatever. Is there any advantage compared to if I had the Orchard-Iota-ADA for distribution? And this is one of the advantages is that those distributors have relationships with Spotify and iTunes that they can get you into these feature spots that TuneCore and et cetera are not really going to advocate for you. There are small exceptions to that, that like I know some of those uh, aggregators do have some things, but it's pretty rare that you're going to get your release really argued for if you upload in the more DIY fashion. Yeah, and again, it's a lot of it is just based off of like connections. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, that's exactly it. And the other thing I'd say is like when you see the yellow card song get taken off, the other thing is is there's an intern who's basically probably the uh, person who's overseeing this playlist, and they might notice that that song's getting a dramatically low amount of plays and say, you know what, we should pull this off because the person who typed them up. Because that yellow card album is uh, is terrible. Yeah, and they've also been told that if it gets like this percentage of play plays compared to the rest of the plays that they should pull it off the playlist. I'm sure there's so superior... It's all about the algorithm, Jesse. Yeah, yeah, the algorithm, that's it. <laughs> I mean, what, but Jesse, like, what hardware and software do you use to make algorithms? Oh, wait, that's not the question. Um, 
that's not the question. <laughs> so the question is, is what hardware and software do I use to keep all of my files backed up? Can you be too careful when it comes to having copies? And what are some precautions people overlook, specifically for session files and recordings? Yeah, I have a few quick tips I can tell anybody who makes their own recordings or is concerned for their files. So Please do. I'm going to take a quick nap. Th th this would be good for you to know as a label boss, too. Oh, I'm a boss. That's right. My bad. For $4 more a month, Dropbox has a feature called PackRap, and PackRap will store any file you upload to Dropbox forever. I shouldn't say forever. They will store it for as long as you keep paying for it. And I did so, not know this was a feature. Yeah, this is one of their best features that they don't really advertise, and I don't understand why. So here's a great example. Oftentimes, certain labels I work with, no names, will say, hey, I lost the link for that record that you mastered for me two months ago, but now we're ready to do something with it because we finally got album art or Jesse something. Jesse is subtweeting me. <laughs> and I've already deleted it from the Dropbox because I said, hey, two months is a little too long to have a master sitting around. I'm sure they're getting stuff done. I don't need to keep this up, taking up space and taking up my uh, eye space when I'm sorting through files. So I hit delete. All I then do is I go on to Dropbox when they tell me that the, the link's gone, and I click, uh, I find the file, and then I click restore, and literally in one second, that link is live again, and I look like a hero and say, hey, this is live again. So Packrat is really great because then that means, you know, your computer burns down, whatever, that file is still there, anything that you've added to Dropbox. Um, Amazon Glacier is interesting. I haven't used it as much as I thought I would, but what Amazon Glacier allows you to do is it allows you to upload files that you're done with for the most part. And because the downloading fees, if you need to get it again, are a little bit more expensive than the uploading fees. But for about, I want to say it's a dollar a terabyte, uh, you can keep files in Amazon's cloud. So that's really cool for archiving. My one thing is I don't like having monthly fees held over my head, but that's one way to store things offline. The other thing is um, Otherworld Computing makes a thing called a wizard, which is a way to do hot swappable hard drives. So basically instead of having to buy hard drives with cases, you can buy raw hard drives, plug them down into this thing, and then throw files on them. I do that, and then what I do is I take one uh, one hard drive when a record's done. I leave it at the studio and another dr hard drive, and I put it at my apartment. So that way, if one of them burns down, I still have a copy of everybody's record. Mm, very important. Yeah. This and Glacier no, you, thing is interesting. I have to oh, go yeah, through yeah. the process of I need a better system for, like, all the masters that we have for the label. Like, we have them all yeah. in our individual release folders, you know, but I just mm -hmm. I want to Sometimes we move stuff around in Dropbox and then something gets lost and it's like a disaster. Um, I need to get a little better with the system. The glacier the glacier is definitely an interesting, interesting thing, but you know, also offline Dropbox and pack rats just as good. So on to less nerdy things, if anybody's still awake. What is more important, a great de demo with no live experience or a killer live show but no demo? Uh, I, I think this. I think this one's pretty obvious. Um, that you need to have a, a great demo because if you're great live, and then somebody goes to consume you afterwards, they're going to forget about you when they can't listen to you. Yeah, uh, I think we've talked about this too. Like I, I don't know the the odds of 
I, I, it's kind of interesting to think about the context of like being really great at a live show, but then having shitty music to listen to because it's usually the opposite. <laughs> and that's, ho- I yeah. mean, usually, hopefully the opposite because that's okay. You can get better live unless like you just have a singer that for some reason has actually a horrible voice and whatever got recorded is like not really authentic. But yeah, definitely important to have a great live demo because as I a great demo, you a mean. great yeah, sorry, a great demo because like all, I mean it's it's hard. It, most people don't get into bands by seeing them live for the first time. Like they hear them first or they hear them after, and then they'll want to go see you live. So always be practicing. But or you know, like one of the things that comes to mind is I see bands live often. I go, you know, that was really good. I should check them out afterwards. But then that's the key is you don't become a fan until you check them out and then you continue listening and thinking about them past that one night you saw them. I can remember going to see – this is actually a funny one. Is I went and saw your your favorites, Angels and Airwaves, and one of my good friends is in that band. And I went and saw them, and um, I don't smoke the uh, funny grass too often, but I had smoked some that night. Jesus, my grandma listens to this, man. <laughs> I thought they were the greatest band I had ever seen, and I was like, how did I overlook how great these songs were? Oh, my God, you've never told me this. And then I got home, and I tried to listen to Angels and Airways like three times, and I went, man, it takes a lot of pot to appreciate how bad those songs are. Uh, <laughs> what? It's, it was, yeah, it was, it was true. It made me realize why so many people get stoned at concerts, because it can make pretty mediocre music seem really awesome. Can I go on a little side rant? Mm-hmm. Everyone, like, so I, I assume... I, I mean, wait, wait, isn't that what this show is, is just long side rants? <laughs> I mean, so you've, I'm sure, through seeing Absolute Punk and all press posts, just like, so Tom has officially, like, gone off his rocker again. I mean, Have you, did he ever get back on it? Yeah. I mean, this is a little different. I think he's, I think he's like lost it a bit, and it's, it's a little concerning. Like, I think he's legitimately either back on like some serious drugs or is like actually losing his mind in a way that's like not really funny. But everyone's like too busy trying to get the traffic from it first and not helping instead of being like. Well, really, but but really, what are you gonna do as an alt press writer or an absolute punk writer? Well, you to could help? be like, like, I already posted five stories that Tom DeLonge is going to write fifteen novels this year. Meanwhile, everyone is very aware that that's not going to happen, right? I, I mean, he's a little. Is he still doing the Alien Truther site? I mean, aliens are real. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> I feel like you should believe in aliens. Why would I believe in aliens? I don't know. I, I am a rational human being. I do not believe in aliens. How do you think we're the only ones? Uh, it's pretty easy. I think we're the only ones. <laughs> <sighs> uh, I'm a rational human being who reads facts, not speculation and stupid... St- I shouldn't say stupid science fiction because I read tons of stupid science fiction. You're really bullying me today. Mm, am I? Am I still this cranky? Yeah, you seem very cranky. You need to, you need to smoke some more pot and listen to Angels and Airwaves. Oh, I think you need to not wake me up at 10 a.m. to do podcasts. You recommended really this time. I actually said 12. Oh, well, <laughs> whatever. I'm on spring break. You know, I'm getting crazy. Oh, nice, nice. Jaeger bombs all around. Ugh, I've never done one of those. Oh, you're missing out. <laughs> I, I got a to-do on my list now when I see you next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, we're hanging out next week, everyone. Uh-huh. We're going to do a together podcast. Where we do Jaeger bombs. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, do we have more questions? 
to see how we do. So, so, so this is another one that I think is interesting and I get asked a lot, which is um, it's from At Sleep Audio, which is what can a band with full-time jobs and limited time to spend touring do to maximize exposure and buzz? I think a lot of bands see this as a detriment. I actually think this is one of the better things you can have a lot of the time at your early stages. Having a full-time job means you can fund your band and fund a lot of the things that you need to do in the early days. I always say it. It's like that bands put too much emphasis early on before they have, let's say, you know, a draw of more than 20 kids in five towns um, on touring. And touring is useless at that point. Like, you should be going and trying to play on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday uh, and maybe making Sunday the farthest drive or Saturday the farthest drive and Sundays on the way back home from something. And so, like, let's say you're based out of North Jersey. If you try to play, let's say, Altoona or Pittsburgh on Friday or Saturday, and then, you know, you play somewhere in Ohio on Sunday and you have a long drive and you come back to work tired on Monday, that's a, a really good plan and will steadily keep your band growing. And the other thing is, is with a job is you're able to pay for all the other dumb things you got to pay for, like instruments and being able to afford a good producer will make you sound good. And Jaeger bombs. <laughs> Well, I mean, I thought that was obvious. obvious. Yeah, uh, we, we've like mentioned this, but it's it's better to do a smart weekend warrior tour than a TBA tour um, with, yeah. with nothing going on because it's better to do a, a small tour where you can plan for a while or you can promote it better and be more condensed rather than being like, well, I don't have a job because I'm trying to do this music thing full time when there's no need for you to be doing music full time yet. You know, not that hopefully someday you can't, but just not yet. Um, Interesting enough, Brian from Have Mercy, a band I managed, just like quit his job because hopefully they're at the point now where they're going to be on tour enough and being able to do it. And that's a little different because they're on a label and they've done tours and yada, yada. But like, you know, even 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 like for a lot of bands that are quote unquote successful, like they still have jobs when they're home from tour. But it's it's a little different to, I think, quit your job to focus on music when there's no one ready to support you yet. There's no one ready to support you. And I think there's even just like a stage of like where you're not making enough income from the band that you could afford. Like I often get asked, like, how much money does it cost to make like a demo that might turn you into a band that can get on good tours? And that often is like a couple thousand dollars. And if your band isn't bringing that in, keep that full time job for a while. As much as that's not fun to say and it's not the answer people want to hear. I think that that's that's the way to do it. And then the other thing to do too is is make relationships with other bands. Go to every show where a potential fan of yours would be. Hand out flyers. You could even still hand out blank CDs. You know that's probably getting less effective every day or hour at this point. But go and be a part of your community while you have that full time job when you get off because now you have money to go to the show afterwards. Yeah. And uh, this kind of feeds into that next question. Hey, guys, I've booked DIY tours in the past. I have contacts and the experience where I am very comfortable doing it. I'm curious what your thoughts are for contacting bands that are bigger than my smaller local band that aren't super huge. I'm talking about bands on smaller, medium-sized labels um, somewhere probably around the bad timing or the soft speak records worlds. Um from bands that are in the transition to being a medium size, but are currently small. Uh, 
So Jesse, reading this question, I wasn't sure if this individual was asking if he should book DIY tours for his band to tour with or if he should try to be the booking agent. Yeah, well, I think it was to bands to tour with. Mm. And I do think that, I mean, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be scouring through Bandcamp and searching other cities or other states and pop punk in the tags and or looking at album covers. I noticed that when I did it the other day that usually you can tell pretty much by the album cover, mostly because also the graphic designers all get cheap. And once they find one thing that looks good, they keep putting that same design out to everybody. Anywho, yeah, you reach out to the, these bands and no, I don't think it looks bad. This is what you're supposed to do. Now, is it a lost cause? This is one of the things I think that also gets interesting for bands is musicians get really discouraged when especially when they put their eggs in the basket of like one particular band. I think getting a, yeah, let's link up and it actually happening one out of 10 to 20 times is success in this department. Mm. Would you not agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's like, you know, you can't at that level, like you can't expect everything to be a success, but it's, it you you can only get to the next step by, by putting in the effort of trying, you know? Yeah. And so I, I think it's also a similar thing with like um, press is that like bands will be like, I wrote to um, seven blogs and none of them wrote back. I'm like, well, if you got one out of 25, you're doing pretty good when you're a new band. Right. And that's the same, like, uh, of all the jobs I have had and had, like, the one job I'll never, never want is, like, being a publicist, you know? And that's different than a band looking for press, but, like, you're just cold calling people all day with good intentions, hopefully, but it's just... The, the rate of return is so low, but hopefully the the what you do get returns on ends up being really meaningful. And and publicists are super important and they can be great. But and same thing, it's like same reason why bands should reach out places and try to develop relationships on their own. But it's just patience. And and the only way you're going, even though it sounds so shitty, the only way you're going to make it somewhere is is by building those relationships and and getting hopefully some some press love as well. Um, and it's just kind of like, you got to just stick it out and do it. Uh, to, to also relate it to our answer before, some of the way you make these connections is by going to the local shows and going to those shows where it would be fans that would like your band and not just also having flyers and talking to the kids who come to the show. It's also making acquaintance and talking to the other bands and making friendships, offering them to stay at your house if that's something you can do. All those things go long, long ways in making the relationships you're going to need to make to. Yeah, and it shouldn't even be like faking it. It's just like be a good, yeah, be no, a good dude or a good dudette. <laughs> you know, like just be a good, yeah, be good. Uh, like I. If, if anything, don't fake it. You want to you want to build relationships with people you genuinely like. If you think their band sucks and you go up and tell them you're an asshole, but or if you go up and tell them they're great, you're an asshole. Like you go up if you genuinely feel like there's something to bond over, even if it's something as simple as you both use the same cool weird delay pedal or something. That's fine, but like, yeah, don't fake it just because you think the band's about to be huge. This next question is, I think, maybe the question why we want to make today a, a question episode. <laughs> yeah. At what point does a strange, a strange relationship within a band become so toxic that action has to be taken? A, example given, personally leaving or kicking someone out. And this related really to me because I've been thinking about kicking Jesse off the podcast. Well, I'm, telling, I'm telling him now. 
Uh, oh, that's 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 good. To, that's good to hear. It's glad to to know that my cranky attitude finally got me fired. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, I think you've had more experience with this than I have. I'm curious on your thoughts. You know, it's funny. Remember, like when we made the joke that we should never do dating advice, but I, I have to say. This is like very much dating advice. Is this? It is. It is straight up dating advice. I think that a lot of this is about one, like when somebody crosses lines that can be very detrimental to to your growth. You know, I think about like one band I was working with where like the kid in the band was uh, waiting till the rest of the band got up from the table and they'd leave a tip and he'd steal the tip and the whole check off money off the table when the band wasn't looking, and we had to fire him for that. I think there's also a thing, though, that's much more common, which is just, one, the person loses enthusiasm towards the band, or two, decides, I think this is actually the most common reason you have to get rid of somebody, is they are too, I don't want to say weak, but their foot's in two camps, and they don't want to quit the band quite yet because they still have some hope, but really they're doing lots of things that will prevent the band's progress, like... For example, selling their drum set. I saw one friend's band do and yet it's like, yeah, we should be touring still. No. And they sold the drum set so that they could uh, buy a couch for their apartment with their significant other. And you're like, I think that there's a lot of times that it's the half hardest. I don't think you can give a general advice about when it's time to kick somebody out. It's when you notice it feels right. Now, another thing would be is should you have somebody else lined up first because then your band's progress can stop as much as that's kind of messed up I think it's sometimes the way to go I think in general it's just you know you're not on the same page but I also think that there's a big thing I've seen with um bands firing members where you haven't learned how to communicate well together and this is more of the relationship thing and there's so many times where people don't give the other person a chance to be heard out and then that leaves a very bad friendship strain for the rest of the time because you did just didn't know how to communicate. It really helps to learn how to not angrily communicate your opinion to somebody about what they've been doing and learn that skill. Um, because a lot of the time I think bands create a nothing situation where they think they have to fire somebody just because they really don't know how to talk to them about what they don't like that they've been doing. Yeah. And, and like on management side, so much of being like a, uh, Managers kind of babysitting, you know, and kind of dealing with strained relationships. And uh, it's so often that like you'll it, it again, it's just like a good girlfriend or a boyfriend or like even a friendship. It's just like, wait, can you say that out loud again? Because what you just said either sounds like it's not a big deal is ridiculous or like one of you guys used the long, wrong language <laughs> and now you don't understand you and you, it just like got miscommunicated somewhere, you know. It's just like, you need to sort this out. Think about it. Is this actually a big deal? If it is a big deal, well, then everyone needs to deal with it. But if not, maybe it's going to be okay. And sometimes it can just be about like taking a deep breath and stepping back in my mind. Yeah. I think think that's another thing too, is like, you know, especially even having like every band has that friend, whether it's their tour manager, their manager, the roadie merch person who can kind of also sometimes not see this from a little bit of a step back that like, dude, there's just so many times that like band members are mad because they got woken up from a nap when they really needed sleep while on tour. And they're just so mad at that other person that they can't see the light on this stuff. Um, but then there's also other times where I see, I'm like, wow, you should have fired that guy like nine months ago because that person's been doing terrible things all the time. 
<laughs> it's a tough one, tough one to navigate. And I think that it's, this is so much about who you are, but I mean, if there's one bit of advice I can say is, is yelling doesn't ever have to be in it. Cause when somebody, once you start yelling at each other, there's a concept like where you get flooded is like what psychiatrists like to call it, where like you can't, you're not even communicating what you really feel anymore. Cause you're so on the defensive it should be a calm conversation. If somebody yells, you say, please Let's not yell. Let's just talk about this calmly. And don't do it on email and text. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> do not do it on email and text. Get on a group Skype if you're even thinking about doing that. Mm-hmm. And, these, and this is the segment of the show that we just call normal life talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because this is normal life stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be good to your neighbor, Jesse. I mean, oh, I, I, I mean, you know, the my my neighbor who air changes every day because they Airbnb out their apartment every day, so it's a different set of Europeans. I'm not being too good to them; they're pissing me off pretty bad. Maybe wow. that's why I'm so cranky. Is this my neighbor night? has begun like working out above me? <laughs> oh, that's as bad as mine. And like the first <laughs> few ones were like pretty short workouts, and I was like. Maybe this is really just intense sex. <laughs> uh, oh, and then man. they started being like 40, like like an hour-long workout even. And then, you know, then it was just clear. Like you could hear like weights. Like you could hear like the girl like drop weights on the floor or something, right? And she'll do them at like sometimes it'll be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes it'll be at 11 o'clock at night. And you know my bedtime's 11.30. Oh, my God. It sucks. It's like, oh, got to get out of there. Gotta get out of there. Yeah. I'm having roommate problems. Trying to trying to move out, trying to sublet. This girl was like, I'll sublet it. And then she backed out, Jesse. What am I gonna do with that? That, That's a very, very good nothing is more backed out of than a sublet, aside from maybe a um dinner at a Mexican restaurant on a Friday night. (laughs) Can I explain my really quickly? I just want everyone to feel my pain. I am leaving my apartment in August, right? That's when my lease is up. My like the, mm-hmm. the place that I've been in for three years for college. It's up. I'm out. The the girl who's taking over my lease, like the person that's moving in after me, she contacted me about subletting I, and starting in May instead of August. And I was like, "This is great. You're moving in anyway. You're gonna need to buy my furniture probably. Everything I have is like in good shape and matches. This is the perfect situation, right?" And then we go back and forth, and she's like, oh, I don't want to move in with you because I don't feel comfortable living with someone that I don't know, i.e. my roommate who's only there three days a week. And she's backed out. But but as far as I'm aware, whoever moves in for that guy, my roommate now in September, is not a friend of her. So regardless, she'll be with someone that she doesn't know. And now she's going to have to find somewhere to sublet for, on her own for four months. Is going to need to get new furniture twice and is going to have to move twice. And this is my frustration in my week, Jesse. You're just, you're just cranky, but I have a real problem mm. on my hands. Where am I going to live? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to come move to Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. That's Can I, actually, I have, even a, I have even a bigger dilemma on my hands. Uh-huh. You, you want to hear my, my big scary dilemma? It looks like uh, I mean I said uh-huh. It looks like Grace is getting a job in New York City, which is fantastic. So it looks like she'll be moving here, and um, mm-hmm. you know we don't know where she's going to live. And you know, I mean, what do you think my natural fear is? Uh, that she wants to live in Brooklyn. That she has to get an up. No, that she, I mean she doesn't necessarily want to or not want to, but I feel like it's probably like a seventy percent chance. Do I break up with her? I don't know. Oh, my God. I don't know, man. What do I do? I'm not trying to go to Brooklyn all the time. 
Yeah, you're silly like that. I know. This is heaven here. This is heaven. <laughs> heaven. <laughs> so, now, now that we've tried to solve your life problems and really just scoffed at them, um, somebody has a question where they want to know if I'm going to have a 2015 edition of Get More Fans, which uh, I am happy to say will be out within the next 30 days. Really? Um, it's mo- Yeah, it's mostly done. I get it. It comes out every April. Um, every April I update this and technically I even updated about halfway through the year. I fixed some small things around September, October. They also want to do to tell me that they, I needed to edit some of those typos. And to that, I say I had five editors, but there's 270,000 words in it. You're going to miss a few little things. So I'm saying okay. 270,000 words, Zach. How many is that? It's a lot. I mean, I know you just told me how many it is, but I'm trying to, like, visualize how many words that is, you know? And it's not working. Well, the, th- think of it this way. The average book is 30,000 words. Jesse. So that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, that's almost 10 times the average book. So there's going to be a few little things in there that I miss, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, naturally. you you. I mean, there's always more words to add. So we, we skipped recommendations last week, I noticed. Oh, we did, did we? Yeah, we did skip recommendations last week, and I actually had someone uh, like Facebook IM me about it and be like, I missed your recommendations on your show this week. I recently got into the jinx because of recommendations, and they're always spot on. Another Jesse uh, recommendation. How about that? I'm just so hip. I finished it this weekend with Grace, and uh, my mind is blown. Did you you finished it right away? I imagine when the when the last episode came out. When I heard that he was arrested, I binged. So I actually uh, I did not like. I knew that he got arrested, but I didn't know anything. Like I did, like all the arrests had the quote in it. You know, not to spoil anything, and I missed that. Uh, so when we so when Grace and I watched the finale, it was like, what is happening right now? This is insane. We like lost it. It was. It's rare that like. I guess it's just, I guess it was so crazy because it's real, like actually real. Yeah. You know? It, what's so crazy is that somebody like that exists. And he's like, he's so good at being a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so you know, my, uh, my ex girlfriend was a uh, criminal analyst. And uh, she always says if you see uneven blinks in somebody, don't walk, run like hell, get the hell away from them because that's their left brain and right brain fight. For, uh, having a premeditation fight. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. So if you see uneven blinks in somebody, don't hang around with them. They're going to kill you. With that, that guy has the most uneven blinks in the history of mankind. So it's like, I was just like, okay, yeah, it's time to go. <laughs> if, I, if I saw that guy, I, I couldn't run fast enough if I uh, had to. Yeah. God, what a creepy. He's going to get, I feel like he's going to get off. Uh, I don't think you're right. I, don't I think know, they, they, And I, if I he goes I, to jail, yeah. I feel like it'll be a, like a like a Martha Stewart jail. Well, that's a different story, which is very sad. At the same time, murderers don't usually get those. Like you know, you get that like when you're like a Dinesh D'Souza and you like lie about uh, how much money you donated to elections, or Martha Stewart where you lie about your taxes right. or your stocks. <laughs> that's not really for murderers. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, do you have recommendations this week? Yeah, I uh, I watched all of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt this oh, week. Oh, okay, me too. <laughs> and man, like John Hamm and that is just the greatest and thing that's ever happened. So, so good, yeah. Grace and I watched it the week last week, and uh, like 
Wow, what a phenomenal show. Yeah. If it, if it I, could, I could probably watch it another time. It was so quick. Like, I feel there were too many jokes to laugh at at once, and I feel like you could watch it several times to unpack everything. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I have to say, I was, uh, I was pretty blown away by it. Um, I did that. Did I recommend 12 Monkeys already? Because I binged the rest of that season last night, and that was really, really, really enjoyable. What's it called? 12 Monkeys. Mm, I think you did it's recommend that. It's on the sci-fi that. channel. Yeah, it's really, it, that show is, it's really good. I think it, that it's bound for greatness. I think that'll be the show that really takes sci-fi to the next level. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I, I don't think I've ever watched a sci-fi show. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll eventually get to 12 Monkeys as I get to all of your recommendations three months late, and then I recommend them, and then you're like, <laughs> I recommended this first. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm like, fine. And then I'm going to rec- uh, recommend some music that I've been loving the new Hit the Lights record. Music? And I, I, I know you don't love it, but... Uh, I, I think the new Hit the Lights record is them back to four, and I think it's a really amazing record. That's cool. Um, new music. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I listened to the Death Cab record today, which is streaming. Oh, oh my God. What? Don't you like Death Cab besides the one album? I, I mean, no. I think Death Cab's been a terrible band and for now a couple records. For a couple records. I mean... That they've basically they've they've lost me okay. quite a while well, ago. Well, I love it. Uh, not surprising because I'm the one, only one person that likes the last record. Uh, I'm a really big fan of it. I can't wait to hear more of it. I can't wait to hear it many more times. Rather, uh, I'm excited for that. Uh, I also am recommending Hop Along. Um, they have a new album coming out in May. I think that sounds right. And uh, they, they've released two songs off of it so far, and they're both really good. Uh, the Fader is streaming a new song this week, and uh, the first sentence of it was, Philly Pop Punk Heroes Hop Along. Um, so other than that, everything's great with Hop Along, because they're not a pop punk band. But uh, yeah, those are the, those are the two <laughs> they're bands. They're definitely not a pop punk band. <laughs> those are the two bands I would recommend. Um, and also Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, if you have not watched it yet, because it's just so damn good. Well, thanks for listening to Off The Record this week. To keep up with us, you can check in at offtherecord.fm or twitter.com slash offtherecord.fm. Jesse's on Twitter at, at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Zizarillo. You can listen in with us live at adobe.com, and you can even give us a rating at iTunes or ask us a question by tweeting hashtag askotr. Thank you. We'll be back next week.